0: There are signs in Florida that say, don't ride the manatees. I've mentioned this before, but there's signs that say, do not ride the manatees, leave them alone. And most adults, most mature people, most upright citizens, they see this sign and they say, very well, and they go on with their day. I, unfortunately, my problem is, I see signs like this and I think, you can ride manatees? That's incredible, giddy up, let's find a manatee. I wanna do this, okay? Manatees, they're kind of like a walrus, hippo, mermaid type thing, but I've never been good with rules. My whole life, since day one, I kind of, uh, I have a, a superpower, I'm able to sense big bureaucracies and unnecessary rules, and it makes me upset. When I went to Tyndale, during my first year, I lived on residence with some friends, and every single month, they had to add more rules because of the stuff that I was doing, because of what we were getting up to. And they probably thought, you know, we'll add some rules, (laughs) that'll stop them. It only made me more powerful, God help me. Now, I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home, grew up going to church, and there was kind of a, a tension. There was something that I started to recognize over time. I would hear people say, we are free from the law we're free from the burden of trying to prove ourselves by keeping the rules and i would hear that but then i would hear something else someone would quote a passage from romans and they would say you know shall we remain in sin so that grace may abound by no means so we don't remain in sin to get more grace either and i thought well what is it i'm free from the law but i still can't do what i want I don't need to follow the law to become a christian but now that i am a christian i need to follow the law as best as i can so what is it maybe you've noticed this tension before in different parts of scripture some parts of scripture will talk about god's covenant and god will say these are the conditions of the covenant and if you're faithful to it there will be blessing but if you're not faithful to the covenant there will be curses. You will be cut off from the covenant. There's also dozens of places in scripture where God says, like Judges chapter 2, God says, I will never cut you off. I will never cast you out. So what is it? What is this relationship between God's people and the law? What was it then? What is it now? What's our relationship with the law? We can wear clothing now made of mixed fibers. We can eat shellfish and pork, shrimp and bacon, hallelujah, we don't have to follow all the ceremonial laws. Today we're gonna be answering this question, what is my relationship with God's law? And how you understand this topic will completely determine how you understand Jesus and how you relate yourself with Jesus. So turn with me to the book of Romans. We recently just finished walking through Romans chapter nine, where Paul had been making this Beautiful argument that everything that's happening with God's people at that time is exactly what God said was going to take place. That God, his promises to his people, his promises to those in his covenant, that he said to them they will be a blessing to the world, they will be a source of blessing. These promises have taken place and are taking place through the person of Jesus. God is, so at the same time, God is doing everything that he said he was going to do And yet at the same time, he's also doing a new work through Jesus. We looked at the passage in Isaiah about how God says he's going to lay a stone in the midst of his people. And some of his people will stumble on this stone. They will get tripped up by what God is doing. Other people, though, are going to build their lives on this new stone. This stone will be a foundation for a new temple for a new people. So some people are gonna get tripped up on what God is doing, and some people will build their lives on what God is doing. And we saw how this stone is actually God's son. The stone is the son. So some people will be bothered, tripped up by Jesus, what he is doing, and they will reject it. And other people will accept Jesus and build their lives on him. Thus fulfilling the prophecy in Hosea, where God says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And those who were not my beloved, I will call my beloved. So how God's own people have seemed to reject him and those outside of God's family have now come into it. The strange and ironic reversal. That was Paul explaining what has happened. Today he's gonna be explaining the why. Why has this taken place? Why did they stumble? And answering this question of why did they stumble will help us answer our question of how do we relate to the law. So turn to Romans chapter 10. We're gonna be looking at verses one through four. Verse one, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's referring to his people, is that they may be saved. So at the start of chapter nine, Paul opens it with the prayer of lament. Paul laments at the beginning of chapter nine. Brandon spoke on this about Oh, how I wish that I could trade my place for them, how I so badly want my kinsmen, my fellow people of Israel to know Jesus. And now in chapter 10, Paul is once again praying for his people, his ethnic people of Israel. But this time it's not a prayer of lament, it's actually a prayer of petition. And if you view chapters 9, 10, and 11 as a section about Israel, Chapter nine opens with lament. Chapter 10 opens with prayer. Chapter 11 will be a portion of praise. It's actually the same structure as a psalm or a similar composition. That's a fun fact. But here's the truth of it. Paul's desire leads to prayer. I have many desires, desires to ride manatees. Rarely do my desires lead me to prayer. But we see Paul modeling this posture of what's the godly response to the things that we feel in our lives. If you remember back in September, We did a series about how do we handle these negative seasons of our life? What do we do with these negative emotions that we feel? What do I do with my anger? What do I do with my fear and my disappointment? And we saw in every week, in every single Psalm that we studied, that the solution, what do we do with our emotions, is not to bow to our emotions, nor is it to hide from our emotions, but we pray through our emotions. So our emotions aren't something that completely run the show, nor are they things that we just ignore and stuff into a box, but we take them and we drag them into the presence of God. We cast them at his feet. We confess them to him, and we ask him to change our hearts, to align our desires with his desires so that we may now love what he loves and want what he wants. So Paul has this anguish for his people. He brings it forward to God. He intercedes on their behalf, and now his heart matches theirs, that he desires that they may know God, just like God desires that the people of Israel may know him. Okay, that's just a side point. Paul has made this intercession. Now he's going to lay out three sentences and each sentence is a chain link in a series of arguments of talking about why Israel, most of Israel, God's people, have stumbled over and rejected Jesus. These are the whys, this is the first why. He says for each time, it's like means because. For I bear them witness, these are God's people, Israel, that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. The word zeal kind of means an intense desire for something. The Old Testament describes God's zeal for His people, for righteousness, for His honor, Isaiah 42. Many Jews, many people at this time, they considered zeal to be a prized virtue, and in some instances, like Numbers 25, they even resorted to violence, to expressing their zeal for God. 200 years prior to Paul's writing this, there was the Maccabean revolution fueled by zeal where God's people led a revolt to the Syrian oppressors at the time. They overthrew them violently and also cleansed the temple. So in this context, Paul is suggesting that his fellow Israelites, his fellow Jews, misdirected their zeal. They have zeal, but not according to knowledge. They misdirected their zeal because they didn't recognize God's work. Perhaps, this is just conjecture, some Israelites thought that the Messiah would would lead a similar revolution to the Maccabean revolution. There were many, many times that different so-called messiahs, people would say, I'm going to deliver Israel, and they would try and lead a revolution, a violent revolution. Jesus though, he didn't deliver his people through the death of his enemies, but the death of himself. He didn't liberate his people with violence, but with love. So this was completely antithetical to all of their expectations of what power and liberation and leadership looked like. It's the same today, same for us. Compare the stripped, broken, bloodied body of Jesus on the cross to a warlord of that time. Paul is saying you've got all the passion, you've got all the zeal, you're all worked up, but for the wrong things. This loosely kind of reminds me of Peter. I I like Peter in the Bible because he's someone that I can relate to. He's always worked up and he always seems to get it wrong. When Jesus is, is in the garden and guards come to take him, Peter pulls out his sword, tries to defend Jesus. He swings at the guard and he misses his head. He at least takes off the guard's ear. And Jesus is probably shaking his head. He bends down, picks up the ear, and he heals the guard. Peter swings at the guard, and Jesus doesn't say, good, finish him, but he heals the people that are going to take him away to be crucified. Peter says, I'll never leave you, Jesus. Jesus says, you're gonna deny me three times before morning. Paul first says that they trip up the Israelites over what God is doing in Jesus because they have zeal without knowledge question for us today where is our zeal without knowledge where's my zeal without knowledge where am i fired up passionate about something but it's not actually in line with either what god is wanting to do or how god is wanting to do something when i was reflecting on this i felt convicted i was reminded of 1 corinthians 13 1 and 2 where paul says if i speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Where am I passionate and riled up about, but not walking in wisdom and godliness? We all have our favorite topics and concepts and causes. Are Christians known for getting worked up about foolish things? Maybe we have something to learn here. I know I do. So the first part of Paul's argument about why they got tripped up is simply because they had zeal but not knowledge. Okay, now let's continue on, verses two and four. Second part, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own, this is their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This is an important phrase. Remember that the way Paul's using the phrase righteousness here, it's not in a moral sense. It's not referring to that's a righteous person, meaning they're a person of you know good moral character, or that's a self-righteous person, meaning that They're not a nice person, they're stuck up. Righteousness here, it's a specific forensic legal sense of one's faithfulness to their covenant duties in this case. So when it says God's righteousness, this means his faithfulness to the covenant. And what does this exactly look like? If you wanna see what this looks like, flip back a few pages to Romans chapter 3, 21 and 22, Paul explains it like this, but now the righteousness of God, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So to put this simply, God's faithfulness is shown through Jesus. So if you're not submitting to God's faithfulness, to God's righteousness, you're not submitting to God's work through the person of Jesus Christ. So when the Israelites are said to not submit to this, it means they're not responding to Jesus in faith and trusting in Him to be for them what they can't be for themselves. Trusting Jesus to be their right standing with God, not at all. They rejected this just like the wicked tenants did in the parable of Matthew 21 that we looked at two weeks ago. They rejected the son. And Jesus says, they're rejecting the stone, just like it was prophesied and I am the stone, so you are rejecting me. So Paul says, these people have zeal without knowledge. They aren't walking rightly, not living according to it. Why? Because, this is the four, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the one who will deliver God's people. So you're walking with zeal, not according to knowledge. Why? Because you're rejecting God's righteousness, which is the provision of Jesus. And there's one more chain link, there's one more four. Four! Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is perhaps the most important phrase in these verses. Christ is the end of the law. The word end here, it's the Greek word telos, T-E-L-O-S. It has a double sense. Telos can mean goal or it can mean completion. It can mean like the purpose of something. What's the final destination of it? So on the one hand, Christ is the goal at which the law aimed at. He embodies the perfect righteousness which the law prescribes. He is the thing that the law is pointing towards. How ought we live in perfect communion with God and in perfect relationship with God's creation, with ourselves and with other people. It's pointing to Jesus. Jesus hints at this in Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now the law's requirements are fulfilled in the lives of those who are in Christ Jesus. We saw this in Romans chapter eight. We also saw this in Romans chapter three. Okay, so that's the one hand. It's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the purpose, the end goal of it. Also, because Jesus has fulfilled the law, he's obtained this righteous status. Now he completes the law. And now that the law, it's, it's not a tool or a function to be a means of acquiring this righteous status. Now we don't have to use the law to acquire this righteous status, Jesus did it. So he has completed the law and that it's a means to an end. Let me put it this way. Christ put in, I can't, let me try that one more time. Christ puts an end to the law, not by destroying it, but by completing it. In the Old Covenant, God comes to Mount Sinai with Moses and Israel, and He gives them two things. He gives them the tablets and He gives them the tabernacle. He gives them the Ten Commandments and the temple. And what are these two things? These two things symbolize law and love. The law is letting people know how they ought to live. How ought they interact with each other? How ought they interact with God? That's the law. But the tabernacle, was a means of righting their mistakes. This is where sacrifices would be made. God knowing, hey, you are going to drop the ball, you are going to make mistakes, and this is how you can get back in right standing. You always have both. You always have law and love in any covenant. Israel broke it by not observing the law and also not seeking out the right sacrifices. So they didn't even play by the game at different times. So Jesus comes to fulfill all of this. When he goes to John the Baptist, he says, baptize me. John says, I can't. And Jesus says, you must, because we must fulfill all righteousness. I've come as a human being to do everything that you must do. I've come to do it myself. And so now on the cross, the death of Jesus brings the reconciliation of law and love. He reconciles both. Jesus took the curse of the covenant for us so that we could receive the blessings of the covenant. The covenant said, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. Jesus obeyed to procure the blessing. And on the cross, he also took the curse, which we deserved. I'll illustrate this for you. Let's play a game. You go first. Go ahead. You don't know what to do, right? Cause you don't even know what the game is. You don't know what the rules of the game are. What's the point of rules? Rules in some senses, they can provide structure. They provide the terms of engagement. Now too many rules can be suffocating. I'll point that out. But also if there's no rules at all, it's, It's chaos, it's anarchy. There is no game whatsoever. Just like with relationships, there are conditions. What type of relationship is there with this? So if the rules or laws are being observed, then the relationship, the activity, the game, it can begin, it can take place. It can actually occur and flourish at the same time. Jesus has met the conditions so that the relationship can begin. Let's say you're going on a trip to Hawaii father hear my prayer i get on the plane and i go to hawaii hawaii is the destination it's the goal but once you get there the trip isn't over the trip begins things aren't finished they're just getting started so if the rules if the conditions if the laws are met and honored and maintained then things can begin but when the rule is broken things stop jesus meeting the conditions of the law doesn't end the christian life It starts it. So this is the chain link that Paul has been establishing for us. These three links in this chain. The reason that some of his Israelite kinsmen have stumbled over Jesus, have rejected him is because, I'll show you, they have a zeal without knowledge because they are ignorant of God's righteousness, because Christ is the end of the law. They don't have the knowledge. They're ignorant of God's righteousness because Christ is the end of the law. We could say this backwards, look at this backwards, start with the main conclusion, look at the premises. If you don't know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, then you will be ignorant, unaware of how God has put us back into right standing with him. And if you don't know that, then you will have a zeal without knowledge. You will be trying all the more, spinning your tires and not getting Anywhere, working yourself to the bone to try and attain something which you can't and that's something Jesus already did obtain for us. So what what does this look like for you? Okay, this just sounds like some cool theological background knowledge about this stuff. Where do you fit in with all of this? This reconciliation between law and love that we see in Jesus, it clashed right with many of the people of his time. And it clashes with many people in our time as well. Let me show you a powerful example of this reconciliation of law and love in Jesus and how it clashed with the people around him. Turn to John chapter eight. We'll be looking at verses three to 11. This is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Powerful story. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her In the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, this will be important, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They said, uh, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they're trying to put Jesus in a trap. They're saying this woman has been caught in adultery. And if you look at Deuteronomy 22, Numbers chapter five, this is what is pointed out. So if Jesus says, don't stone her, they can accuse him of breaking the Mosaic law, not taking the law seriously enough. However, the other side of the bind is this. If Jesus does tell them, yeah, go ahead and stone her, he'll be breaking the Roman laws at the time. They're under Roman occupation. They'll be breaking the Roman laws of the time and perhaps the scribes and the Pharisees can come to the Romans and say, hey, Jesus broke your laws as well. So either he's breaking God's law or he's breaking the civic law at the time. How does Jesus respond? Let's keep reading. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. This is the first time he does this. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. This is the second time. So they're pestering him. Jesus bends down and he starts to write in the dirt on the ground and they're pestering him. They continue to ask him, hey, hello, Jesus. Uh, Numbers five says, we got a stone here. Are you paying attention? Are you listening? Hello, is anyone in there? What do we gotta do, man? Can you hear me? They're pestering him. They're trying to pressure him. Give us an answer. Jesus stands up and says, whichever one of you who is not, who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And then he bends down and he keeps writing. What happens? But when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now we can see Paul's three things that he mentioned about stumbling in this passage. First, we see the zeal without knowledge. God's people are told to seek justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with their God. There is no justice here, nor is there mercy. A woman is caught in adultery. They only bring the woman forward. Adultery is a team sport. Last time I checked, there's no justice here, nor is there mercy on her. They're dragging a woman in this, throwing her before Jesus, trying to catch her in this. There is also no humility in this. They're partially haphazardly and unfaithfully applying God's word to suit their purposes. That's one, zeal without knowledge, they have none. Second is ignorance of God's righteousness. Hey, you say you're God, look at what this person did. Treat them according to their works. Let their right standing before you be determined by the actions in their life. Now they are pointing out aspects of the law, but it's incomplete. It's incomplete because third part, Christ is the end of the law. It's interesting that twice, Jesus is recorded as writing in the dirt with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. We don't know, but it is recorded twice. Some scholars have different guesses, theses about what he might be writing here. Augustine, the church father, the bishop, he posited perhaps that just like God himself on Sinai, twice wrote out the law with his finger upon the tablets, perhaps Jesus is trying to draw some kind of parallel with him writing out something on the ground. Maybe he was writing out these passages from the Old Testament about the stoning. We don't know, but perhaps that's happening there. We don't know what he wrote, but we do know what Jesus did. So let's go forward. How does he meet this woman? First, he meets her with truth and with grace. He says, neither do I condemn you, that's the grace. And he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. He also meets her with truth. He's not ignoring that she was in sin, but he says, neither do I condemn you. And he is the one person who was able to throw that stone. Of all the people in that group who could throw the first stone, who was without sin, Jesus was the only one worthy of casting condemnation. But because he also was the only one without sin, he's the only one in that group who can actually forgive her sins. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And very soon, he will go to the cross to pay the price for this woman's sin. Guess what? This is our story. Romans 7 says that the law reveals our failure, our brokenness, our wrongdoings, our unfaithfulness to God, that the more that we try and keep it, the more we're aware of our own limitations, how much we can't be perfect, how much we're not perfect at all. We are caught in this in our unfaithfulness to God. Many times in the Old Testament, God refers to his people's unfaithfulness as adultery. We are caught in our unfaithfulness like this woman. Then Jesus comes to us. We don't go to him. And one by one, the accusers, the demands of the law leave you and you are left with your savior who loves you. Jesus meets the demands of the law. So your job now is not to be perfect, it's not to check the boxes, to keep the rules, nor is it, listen close, to keep track of other people's ability to check their own boxes or lack thereof. Your goal now in life is relationship with God, to build this relationship, to enjoy your relationship, to honor God and enjoy Him forever. And when we see the faults in others' lives, which Jesus does not ignore, we point them to relationship with Him as well. Why? Because if Jesus is your righteousness, if Jesus is your right standing before God, and you fail, and you fall, and you sin, and you will, the solution is not to hide away, to try and fix these things, to make yourself presentable again, and then return to God, to try to earn back your righteousness. Why? Because Paul has shown that that rejects the righteousness by faith. That rejects God's act of righteousness in Christ. And guess what? When we do that, we're following the same chain link. We will try and use our zeal for other things to convince us that we're in right standing with God. We'll try and earn our righteousness back. We'll become zealous about other things that we try and make our means of salvation. Perhaps we become uh, very zealous about our theological purity, or perhaps uh, we become very proficient at something in our lives, Or uh, or we become culture warriors for our favorite causes, or we use something else to justify ourselves, and we will destroy anyone who threatens that, who threatens our means of salvation. These are good things, but they become God things. They become how we justify our own righteousness to ourselves. So for you today, for you watching, do you need to be challenged, or do you need to be encouraged? Are you the person holding the stone? Are you casting down others and judging them and their failures, condemning them? Or are you the person who is being condemned and needs to be reminded of the right standing grace and forgiveness that we have in Jesus? Sinclair Ferguson, He's a great theologian. He's also a pastor. And he said that when he thinks of all the people that come in to see him for counseling, for pastoral counseling, all of their problems fall into either one of two categories. And so he says, to quote him, essentially everything I do is one or the other to comfort the disturbed or to disturb the comfortable. Some people, God is displeased with how they're acting and they think they're fine. And there's people that God is pleased with who feel that God hates them. Some people have their consciences screwed on too loose. They're fine, everything they do is fine. No one should have any problems with them or impose any kind of response to their actions. They can do what they want, treat people how they want. They are the arbiters, the judges, the proclamation of right and wrong. Self-indulgent, putting themselves first, judgmental, using other people as a means to their end. Self-centered people who are unaware of their need for a savior. We have people in churches like this. We also have other people in churches like this. The other category are those who have their consciences perhaps screwed on too tight. They don't like themselves. They hate themselves. They look down on themselves. They think God could never love me. No one could ever love me. I am unworthy of all of these things that I've received. So it's hard for them to believe that God loves them. And there are also people like this in every church and there's a little bit of both in each of us but we tend to fall on one side or the other and the way forward this is the good news the way forward for both people is the new covenant the fulfillment of the law in jesus is the response to the failures on both sides the cross showed us how important the law is and it also shows us how powerful and important God's love is as well. On the cross, was Jesus fulfilling the law or was he fulfilling God's love? Did Jesus fulfill the law or fulfill God's love on the cross? The answer is yes. Yes, Jesus did both. Law and love were reconciled in him. And this is where it applies to us. And now when you believe in him, law and love, are reconciled in us because they were reconciled in him. Now we do want to obey, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. So what is my relationship with God's law? Let's return to our opening question. The Christian life isn't what we have to do. It's what we get to do. That's our relationship with the law now. I'm not trying to transform myself to earn God's love. I am being transformed because of God's love. There is justification and then sanctification, to use theological terms. You are declared right in God's sight because of the work of Jesus, and then we are progressively being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, and God says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to completion. Christ is the completion, the fulfillment, the end of the law. So if you want to live as you ought, if you want to become a better person, if you want to live up to how God describes we ought to interact with Him, how we ought to interact with others, how we ought to interact with ourselves, find Jesus. If you want to keep the law, find Jesus. Today we saw Paul's explanation for why his people rejected what God was doing in their midst. They have a zeal without knowledge because they are ignorant of God's righteousness because Christ is the end of the law. Now us as Bayview Glen, what will we be marked as by a church? Will we be marked? Will we be marked as a church with zeal but without knowledge? And there's two ways you can fall on this. You can either fall the way of legalism or relativism. Zeal without knowledge. Perhaps marked by a legalism, but not love. Condemning people, turning them away, besmirching the name of Christ and damaging souls. That's the the false understanding of legalism. Or perhaps we have a zeal without knowledge in the other way. Zeal without knowledge in terms of a relativism. Will we fail to stand? as God's church, to stand for all of God's truth and rather be tossed and turned by every cultural trend and wave and fad that comes along. We would become a church that doesn't offer the good news but simply echoes the same lies of the culture around them. Let us not fall on either side of this. Let us be marked as a church where we have the reconciliation of law and love through the person of Jesus, heralds of the grace of the truth of the gospel itself, reminding everyone of the good news that Christ is the end and the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you for the mighty work on the cross done by Jesus that now we can have right standing with you because Christ has earned the blessings of the covenant and taken on the consequences of our unfaithfulness, Father. We thank you for this. Help us to be reminded of this when we fall too far to one side or the other. And would we, your church, be marked as this place, this place of the intersection of law and love in the person of Jesus. We thank you for this. Amen.